The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome, and thank you so much for tuning in today and joining me for the show. I'm Diane Ray, so glad you could be present and uh, check in with me wherever you're spinning around out there listening. If you are listening to us live, you know you can jump on and join the show, 816-251-3555. I love to hear from people. And one of the things I also love is I love a story. I've always believed that everyone has a story, and I love to hear people's stories. So I'm really in the right position. <laughs> I'm in the right career, you know, for doing that. Um, I've mentioned this before on the show. You know, I, I love to read the obituaries in the newspaper. Oh. I love biographies of interesting people. I just love to hear uh, hear stories and hear what people have to share. And I hope that someday I leave a good story myself. I'm working on that. So my guest today has actually made a career out of telling stories. Antonio Sacre is the most successful storyteller you have never heard of. This is according to his website. We're going to hear more about him today. He's shared stories with over 3 million people over the course of about 25 years in 13 countries and in 45 states. And his professional developments and keynote addresses have helped educators teach writing to students from pre-kindergarten through graduate school. And now his stories are being developed for film and television, which is really exciting. And you can find out more about him on his website, antoniosacre.com. And if you want to see Antonio in action, he has a great video on his website from the PBS pilot episode, Telling L.A., and I love this video so much. I, I wish they had one here in my um, town where I'm living, telling San Diego. That would be so fun. Telling L.A. and the stories are so amazing and relatable. And he's so amazing and relatable. And I love the video so much. I actually watched it twice. So I want to welcome Antonio to the show. And I'm so glad he could spend some time with me today. And welcome, Antonio. Thank you, Diane. It's so great to be here. And thank you for such kind, kind such a kind introduction. I appreciate that. Well, I really loved it. I, I spent some time on your site, and I also uh, spent some time with your book, My Name is Cool, 18 Stories from a Cuban-Irish-American Storyteller. I, I really loved it. I mean, I, I particularly like short stories, and these were so fun. And also, your children's book, A Mango in the Hand, and we're going to be talking about that as well. But first of all, I'm so curious because... You know, I wasn't aware that storytelling could be a career. That that was eye-opening for me. Like, this is really a career? This is awesome. How does one get to do this? So I have to find uh, out, how did you get funny. into this line of work? Like, where do you find the ad, you know, Storyteller Wanted? Oh, <laughs> uh, you're, you're so funny. Um, So, you know, my dad, my dad still doesn't understand it. My dad is the one from Cuba. My mom is, is you know, from Boston, Irish American, and, and he still doesn't quite get it. Um, Partly for a couple of reasons, you know, storytelling is something that everybody does when you, you know, are late for a meeting, you tell the story about what happened on the road, or when you, you know, come back from a, a great day at work, you tell the story to your, your friend about what happened. So, um, you know, my, and my dad has said, you know, when I started when I quit my job as a waiter and was going full-time as a storyteller way back, you know, in my 20s, 
he said, uh, Mijo, it's amazing that you're making a living as a storyteller because you're only like the 10th best storyteller in our family, you know? And it's true. I come, in some ways, I come from this, a family of storytellers, you know, and in a lot of ways, you know, my, when I told my mom that my dad had said that, she had laughed and she said, you know, you probably are the 10th best storyteller in the family. Tommy's better and your grandmother's better. But then she did say this and I, and I never forgot it because it's really sort of helped my career in many ways. She said that you're probably one of the best listeners in the family. And I think that what I've been doing for, you know, even before I was a professional storyteller and even knew that it existed, I was listening to these people, the old people in my family. I was always the kid who I love playing with my cousins and, you know, big snowball fights and baseball games and everything. But I also love sitting with the old people, even when they were boring, right? We're just sitting there, just, just listening to what they were doing. It was years later, I was studying theater and trying to be an actor that I took a, um, in my, I, I got a master's degree in theater. And one of the classes was a storytelling class. So my introduction to storytelling was, was academic to begin with. And it was, you know, just a connection to storytelling being one of the oldest art forms, how we all learned to, to talk before there was the printed word, the stories that have been passed down in all the different um, cultures, the Brothers Grimm stories, Anderson stories, the old Greek and Roman myths, the Bible stories, um, you know, Bhagavad Gita stories, all uh, the, the Torah, the Torah. Um, so the, you know, we just kind of read and studied these stories. But along the way, I also was developing these personal stories, which are, was sort of influenced by a lot of storytellers that I've never met, but I loved. Um, Whoopi Goldberg's, you know, first show of solo performance, which is like a, a mix between comedy and storytelling and acting. And um, Billy Crystal had a solo show about his father and John Leguizamo and Spalding Gray. So I, I was watching sort of these, these sort of famous people doing these personal stories, studying folk tales. And sort of the, the big break happened when uh, in Chicago, there are schools that were already hiring professional storytellers to come into their classrooms. And even though I wasn't ready, the fact that I was bilingual and bicultural was, was crucially important to the students in Chicago when I was living there. And so I, in a way, became a professional storyteller almost overnight because of the need there and because of the fact that I was at the time one of the only ones doing stories about the two cultures in the two languages. Um, so that's kind of a, a bigger, you know, overview of it. And, and along the way, I've just kind of said yes to opportunities as they've, as, they've, as they've come along, which, you know, led me into children's book writing and led me into teaching storytelling to teachers and how it, storytelling can help kids write and read better. And then I've been living in Los Angeles and that, you know, I just continually answering the call to people who are interested in seeing what the stories I tell look like in a broader medium, whether that's, you know, on television or film or podcasts or whatever they, they can think about it. But um, the last thing I'd say about how I got started, you know, when I was first starting storytelling, super close to my grandmother in Miami, my Cuban grandmother, and I would visit her all the time in, in Little Havana and um, just, just loved being with her. And she, you know, she, she died in her late 80s and she died a peaceful death and it was super sad. And telling her story became a way of me dealing with some of the grief of her passing and, and celebrating her life. And, you know, now it's been, you know, 30 years of telling stories about her. And I love it when kids say, I love your grandmother. They don't say, I loved your grandmother. You know, they, she's still alive in all of these kids' imaginations. And uh, so this is a, you know, part of it is just honoring the family and keeping some of their memories alive. And now as I'm getting closer to my grandmother's age than, I, than, I, than when I started and seeing more of the family members that are starting to get old and realizing, oh, wait a minute, it's up to me to keep their 
their stories and their their memories alive and to encourage my own children i have two kids to to think about that as well and of course the the kids that i my, my kids that i tell stories to all over the country um i feel the same way about well it's so important and i love how story is um just really connects us all and i think back to like you were saying kind of the history of of storytelling it really was the oldest form of entertainment right i mean you know when people were gathered around the fireplace or in the cave you know retelling stories of the great hunt or someone who did something heroic you know that was really what what tied people together and i also love the fact that you you said that you like to listen to you know the old people and, and listen to their stories um one of the shows i really enjoy uh, which is on pbs is the the show about genealogy and you know mm. what? I'm trying to remember the name of it. And I just watched an episode last night. And so it just slipped <laughs> my mind. But, but I'm sure I'll remember it in, in a few minutes. But one of the things I like about it is how they reveal, you know, the story of, of, of people's past. And it, it's so fascinating. And in the book that I, I just finished, My Name is Cool, which I hope people will pick this up. It's a, a collection of amazing short stories, 18 stories from a Cuban-Irish-American storyteller. I mean, you're really drawing from two cultures that love story. And I shared a little bit um, with you before we started the show, um, kind of, I guess I could call them my in-laws. My, my sister married into a, a large Cuban family and, you know, there's loud holidays and, you know, the big pig on Christmas Eve and, and the whole thing. Um, so they do love to tell stories, but also your Irish roots. I mean, the Irish storyteller, you know, that's, that's such a great, uh, a great well to draw from. And can you talk a little bit about that, about how you've, you've pulled from your roots, uh, of the Cuban side and the Irish side and telling story? Yes. I, so the, for sure, the Irish storytelling, there, there is a phenomenal tradition of the, the Irish Shanaki and they're, they're, they're these old ancient myths that have to do with the fairy folk and the wee people and the, the seals that become men and women. Now, in my, my mom's family, though, the stories that I heard from them were really just personal stories. I didn't grow up with the folktale tradition. I didn't hear, you know, my great uncle telling me about this, you know, the seal man. There are, um, there are some storytellers from Ireland on the sort of national circuit that are telling those kinds of stories. And that's not sort of my upbringing or expertise. Um, and the same is true with the Cuban tradition. So there's there's plenty of these old folk tales in Cuba, and there's a fascinating mix of African and European and um, Caribbean you know, stories in, in Cuba. But again, the, the kinds of stories that I grew up with were, again, personal stories. My grandmother saying, this is what happened to my auntie when, when I was living in Havana in 1915. You know? um, so you know, so in terms of like, I, I came, I, I come from a tradition of these these storytellers, and but the tradition I come from also is are these personal stories, um, and in some ways, like the the core story of my repertoire is the idea that I really am not of either culture. I'm not fully Boston Irish. You know, when I go there, I don't have the Boston accent, and I'm not fully Cuban. I wasn't born in Cuba. I was born in in Boston, but raised in Delaware. So I'm, I'm sort of perpetually the other. I'm the other in my Cuban, in my Boston family. I'm sort of the, this exotic Latino kid. And in my, my, my Miami family, I was the gringo of the family, you know, and why does he look different from everybody else? And, um, and it turns out that there are plenty of people with these bicultural upbringings, or very much like your example, that are a part of another culture, either by marriage or by choice or whatever it is. And so how do we navigate these two different places? And, you know, the, the commonality is, is, is in story. You know, I, I love telling a story about one of my, 
phenomenal, funny, crazy Boston relatives and somebody saying, oh, I'm not from Boston, but I'm from Texas. And that reminds me of my uncle or that looks like my auntie. Um, so, you know, that's 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 kind of part of it. And sort of back to your original question, how do you get a job as a storyteller? So there are these regional festivals. There's there's one in Florida. There's one in Tennessee. There's there's a few here in California where I live and they want storytellers to come and they want to have the broadest representation of America that we have. And America is very diverse, obviously. And so you'll typically be at a storytelling festival. And, you know, I'm not going to fill that Irish storytelling slot, um, but I am the only, you know, one of the only ones with these two cultures. And they really want to hear about my personal experiences with that. So that's kind of been how I've been able to make a living at it. The last 15 years or so, the schools have been more interested in how storytelling supports writing and reading instead of, it's it's sad in some ways. I used to be able to just go in and entertain kids and telling these great stories. Now I have to have a little bit of a mind towards how, how does this raise their test scores at the end of the year, right? And um, right. there's still a way to do that with the stories that I tell, but it's it's a slightly different focus. But yeah, so the you know I, w- what I have done over the years too, though, is I have delved into the folklore, even though I didn't grow up hearing those stories from either side of my family. I've definitely spent time researching them, and that's led me to study of all the different, as many different folk traditions that I can get my hands on. Um, my brother just married a woman from China, and that has sparked a lot of interest in me and in, in the language and the folk tales from China and and just, you know, there's a rich tradition of uh, Chinese people here in, in Los Angeles. Um, I live two miles from Chinatown. So that's been a new part of my direction. I'm not sure where, where it's going to lead, but it's just sort of following the muse in some ways. That's so great. I mean, that opens you up to a whole other culture. I mean, growing, I grew up in South Florida, so I was always around, um, you know, Hispanic culture and, and, and all of that. But when my sister married into a Cuban family, then you're really like, you know, brought in, like, I love all the food and everything. And, and so my nephew, um, he's been brought up bilingual, which I'm so jealous of because I'm Mm -hmm. bilingual. And, and so when I go and visit over the holidays and I just, you know, I try to glean whatever they're saying. It's funny, like some of the words and things you pick up, like they'll play music. And, um, there was one song that kept saying, borracho, borracho. And I knew that means drunk. So I'm saying, well, what, what's he talking about the song? And he said, and my my brother sister's bro, uh, husband, my brother-in-law was saying, well, he's saying that we got drunk and we made love, and he's telling me about this song. It's pretty funny. Um, but you you share in in a, <laughs> I guess that's another story. I get off on a tangent. But you share in the book about how, um, you know, growing up uh, bilingual and how you almost lost that, and it made me think of my nephew and how sometimes he tries to push that part away and he'll say, oh, poppy, you know. He won't want to answer my my brother-in-law in Spanish, and and you you share that story and it it was just so poignant how you felt you almost gave away your gift of Spanish language and how keeping that alive you know and, and embracing that was very important. So I just wanted to ask you about that because it, it was like you forgot and then somehow you your grandmother had you remember by osmosis right you just have to kind of had to kind of. <laughs> like re- relearn yeah. the language again. So it's interesting. So that w- one of the books I wrote is is that book that you mentioned earlier, A Mango in the Hand, which the subtitle is A Story Told Through Proverbs. So my grandmother, my dad, also, this this is a roundabout way to answer the question. My grandmother knew about 3,000 of these sayings. Um, I mean, that's a, an estimate, but she just knew a, a proverb or a saying or a dicho for every occasion you can imagine. And my dad estimates that he knows about 300 of them. And I probably know about 100 of them. And my own kids, they're younger. They only know about five or six of them. And that, in some ways, is the 
is the immigrant path in the United States. First generation, only one language. Hopefully your kids are, are two languages. And there's a lot of tradition, a sort of a sad tradition of let's get these kids not speaking their language, whether it's German or Italian or Polish or Yiddish or um, you know Greek, whatever it is that they spoke coming here, let's get rid of it as much as possible to melt in. And, and that's totally understandable. You know, growing up in, in the little town of Delaware in the 1970s, we were the only Spanish speaking family I didn't know any other Cubans aside from the, my family in Miami. And, you know, kids, it's, it's, it's hard to say if I was bullied, if they were just, if they were mean, if they just had never heard, you know, the way, you know, my, they kept saying, well, both my parents had an accent. My mom had the Boston accent. My dad had the Cuban accent. But to me, they were just my parents. So like, hey, your dad talks funny. Your mom sounds weird, you know. Um, and so I didn't want to be weird. I didn't want to be funny. I didn't want to be different. And, you know, I, I think about this, if my grandmother, you know, wasn't around, I, I would visit her on the, uh, you know, in the summer vacations, and she would be so upset that I was answering her back in English and losing my Spanish. And really, it was her that said, listen, she actually said it this way. Uh, she said, Yo soy tan vieja que tengo una patria en la tierra. She said, I'm so old that I've got a foot in the grave and the other foot is on a banana peel and I'm going to die any minute. She said, you got to make sure you speak Spanish with me before I die. And, you know, I first heard that when she was 70. So she told that joke for another 20 years. But it was, um, <laughs> you know, it was definitely like, wait a minute. I don't want this woman to die without me having a real conversation with her. And so, you know, it was probably seventh grade when I realized, OK, you know what? I may get fun of, be made fun of, but there's this, this, this just amazing woman that I need to be able to communicate with. And that's when I sort of threw myself into studying, you know, at school, in high school, I was able to, to study Spanish and I began to read in Spanish and um, really spending as much time as I could immersed in Spanish. I was really lucky that at my grandmother's house, nobody spoke English. And she lived in Little Havana where, you know, the 10 block radius, there, it, was like a, it was like living in Cuba. There was no English spoken anywhere. And so I had the advantage of, you know, having spoken Spanish as a kid with my dad, giving it up when I was in grade school and then relearning it made it easy for me to relearn it because you sort of do carve a pathway in your brain that kind of is always there. So my own children are both bilingual as well, and they are answering me back in English. And I'm I'm happy then to know that they have a, a pathway in their brain to being bilingual and hopefully they'll take it more seriously as they get older. Um, and but then practically speaking, you know, for jobs, it's great to be bilingual. You know, there's whenever I travel and perform in Europe, I have to hear the same joke. You know, what do you call someone who speaks three languages? Trilingual. What do you call someone who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? American. And, you know, right. it's it's <laughs> it's kind of true and it's kind of sad, you know, and, and um, so part of me is is the musicality of language. I, I I was just thinking about the things that don't translate in either language. You know, my, my daughter is seven years old and she's learning knock knock jokes. She has a hundred knock knock jokes. You can't tell a knock knock joke in Spanish. It only works in English. And there are plenty of, of songs and stories that only work in Spanish. And when you try to translate them into English, it's like, ah, it's funnier in Spanish, you know? And so um, there's there's something that is lost when we lose our, our home languages. Uh, when, you know, there's something that's gained to becoming fully American as well. But I'm just kind of aware of that sort of paradox. And I'm trying to encourage kids of, of all cultures and, and families. I mean, it's funny, I, I joke with my wife. She's like, I'm too old to learn another language. And we're not. It just is what we choose. You know, it's just it's easier or harder, right? It's harder for us as we're older. Even me trying to learn Chinese, trying to learn how to say three words in Chinese from my from my sister-in-law. And she's laughing and laughing because I can't, I cannot make the, I can't make it happen, right? But it's a way that I'm connecting with her that, you know, we wouldn't connect in another way. Um, so 
yeah, it's I, I'm I'm fortunate. I think back if my grandmother, you know, didn't last as long as she did, I probably wouldn't have traveled that path and wouldn't have been exposed to her stories and wouldn't have become a storyteller. And who knows what I would have been otherwise. But yeah, that, that language is just really it's 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 a huge part of what it is that I that I do. And also some of the jobs that I get, I get because I only speak Spanish. I, I there's so many schools now that are there's, the kids are learning in both languages. That's a, you know, they're this English speaking kids are learning Spanish. And so they hire me to tell stories only in Spanish to these English speaking kids. And that's, that's been really uh, a new path for me the last 10 years. And it's been a wonderful addition to what I do. Right. I think it's so important what you're doing. And, you know, hey, you might still be slinging hash if you didn't know, <laughs> you know, if you hadn't learned uh, Spanish so well, true. you know, and to it's communicate. True. And I'm always uh, so jealous whenever I go home and visit. And and I, I love to talk to um, my sister's mother-in-law, Mirta, and she's such a great cook. And really how we communicate is food. And I'll say, mm. you know, make that make that bistecca thing, you know, that pounded out steak. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of it, but she Empani does. Empanizado, like. yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Or um, congri, you know, the mm -hmm. um, the beans and rice thing. And so she loves to do, that, to do that because she knows I appreciate it so much. And then I always tell my nephew, you know, hey, you should really, you know, continue and, and keep speaking in Spanish. It's going to be such a benefit. And I think it really is what makes us special in that way as as Americans, as a melting pot culture, you know, we, I think that we really need to keep that alive. And I, I remember seeing a, a TV show not too long ago about uh, a culture, I think it was the Inuits or Eskimos, where they were really worried about losing their their language, you know, and just yeah. how important it was to keep it alive. A lot of the Native American cultures that are losing their indigenous language, you know, really trying to keep it alive. And it's great that you're incorporating that into your storytelling and, and working with the kids. And you share that that really kind of lit some of the kids up, you know, they were tuning out because they just couldn't understand. And then when you were going back and forth between English and Spanish was really, um, you know, a way to connect people in, in a much in a much tighter way. For so sure. I, I mean, really I, I just that. because I've, I've, you know, I'm frequently talking to kids who are just in this country from whatever country. And because in Chicago, there's a lot of kids from Mexico. And of course, here in Southern California, there's a lot of kids from Mexico. And so just the nature of a school year, you know, when I go to a school, I was just at a school yesterday, you know, it's the middle of the school year, kids have been pretty well acclimated, but there's always some kid who just got here from their country. And there's no, you know, even if it's their second day in the country, how are they going to understand anything when they hear a little bit of Spanish and to see them lighting up in the audience or for me to say, who's ever heard of, you know, and I'll, I'll have a very specific folktale, you know, La Llorona from a, a state in Mexico or, you know, whatever, the, whatever the story is and that, that all of a sudden they become the expert, you know, and, and that's been a, it's a, it's a real great thing. It also is, it's a way of helping kids sort of understand, like, you know, we, you, they may be new here, but there's also something that they have to offer as well, you know, and, and so I, I just, you know, it's, part of it is trying to make, make audiences feel comfortable. And, you know, obviously there are times when that's, you know, I, there's different things that I have to be doing when I'm in front of crowds, but I, I do love that connection. And, and one of the things I've, I've prided myself on, I can say hello in about 20 languages. And so I, I love starting with all the different ways to say hello. And then there's kids just getting so excited in the audience, you know, and but of course, then, then you have the opposite thing that they'll try to speak to you in their language. Like, no, nope, all I can say is hi, I can't say anything else. Um, but uh, so, yeah, that's kind of, um, kind of been part of part of what I do. Um, and just in terms of like, just an, an, an adult, you know, a parent raising kids, 
you know, the, the bilingual brain is a, a, a more flexible brain, you know, and I want my kids to have a more flexible brain. I want them to be able to, uh, um, you know, change with the times, whether they speak Spanish fully or not. You know, it's just like, whatever, I want my kids to know how to swim and to ride a bicycle and to, you know, do math. And so this is, um, you know, when I speak to parents, you know, especially if they have the, the, the gift of having two languages, I'm, I want to reiterate to them, you are helping your kids develop a part of their brain that just won't be developed any other way. Um, and, and there is a sense of if you, you, if you don't use it, you lose it. And then there's a part of your brain that's shut off. And that's, that's sad if you have that ability. You know, you and I are adults. We have so much to do. We probably don't have time to learn another language. I probably won't speak conversation, conversational Chinese, but, but it's still, you know, uh, still something that is to be valued. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wish I could speak, you know, eight, nine, ten languages. I mean, that would be amazing. I remember the first time that I, I went to Europe like 15 years ago and I went to Italy and I had the little book, you know, and and people really appreciated it when, when I'm like right. trying to find uh, where's the bathroom or, right. you know asking just the basic things but I had like one one old guy just kind of patted me on the back you know like bueno <laughs> he was just happy that I was I was trying you know I was good making try. an effort uh-huh. yeah it was it was a good try so I I think it's great that um there seems to be a real interest too in people delving in into their cultures and you know you coming from a Cuban Irish uh background you know, people are doing the 23andMe and, and digging into their genealogy and looking at, at where they come from. And I think the more that we know about that and, and those stories and traditions, uh, the, the better off we are, the, the closer that we can become and see that we really aren't that different. And the interesting thing, too, you know, I did the 23andMe. The you know, growing up, I thought, oh, I've got the Italian father, uh, French and German mother, and come to find out I'm not even really that Italian <laughs> as, as I thought, you know. I'm uh-huh. actually more you know, English, um, English, French, and German, and, and English and Irish, I'm like, where did that come from? You know, <laughs> I'm only like 13% Italian. Wow. So it's funny. Now I have other, now I have other cultures to explore. Um, but it was funny how I was always interested in English history. Like I was, I was always fascinated with the Tudors and loved Henry VIII and all of those stories. And so maybe <clears throat> there's, you know, there's that connection like that. It was always there. I just had to unearth it. Uh, So it's interesting. We're going to take a a short break uh, in just a couple of seconds. And, you know, maybe I'll share a story. Antonio can share some stories. And I have uh, some more questions to ask. I love talking about this. I'm Diane Ray. This is Be Present. And we're talking with Antonio Sacre today on UnityOnlineRadio.org. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me after the break. I'm Diane Ray, just having a great conversation here with master storyteller Antonio Sacre. And you can check him out online, AntonioSacre.com. That's S-A-C-R-E.com, where if you go on the website, he has this really cool video on there from the PBS pilot episode, Telling L.A., 
And I just, I love how you're so comfortable on stage and just sharing like personal relatable stories. And one of the things that I kind of gleaned from the story that you shared on that video was the concept of failing up, you know, mm. where you, you stay open to taking chances and how oh. sometimes things just aren't, aren't meant to be, even though oh. we don't realize it at the time and kind of trusting oh. in that. I mean, do you think that there's a divine presence working behind the scenes in that, uh, in that situation? What do you think about that? Uh, that's so interesting. Uh, you know, um, there, there's a, there's a saying my grandmother said, and it's probably the one I heard the most from her, which is no hay mal que por bien no venga, which means there's nothing bad that something good doesn't come from it. It's not a great translation, but basically the idea that, you know, the uh, common the English one is, you know, when God closes a door, God opens a window, right? So, you know, I, I think that it's so interesting you said that. I think that having a destination for me personally as a professional and as a, you know, in my personal life is important. And then a lot of times what I think I wanted, I don't get, and then I get something even more amazing, um, you know? And so, uh, you know, that story that you're referring to on the website is the story of, you know, following a girl out to Los Angeles and it really seemed to be perfect for me. And then it doesn't, it doesn't work out. And now I'm stuck in LA and what a disaster. And I left a phenomenal career in Chicago and New York to, to just be stuck in Los Angeles. And, you know, and that sort of that grief of that, dissolution of that relationship, I became a writer, a children's book writer and a solo performing writer that led to the opportunities I have in television and, and then led to the, the woman that I married that I have two children with, you know, and, and so I'm profoundly grateful for all of my failures, um, you know, and I feel like part of that also comes from being the, the child of an immigrant. You know, when I first started trying to be a storyteller and, and was getting a lot of no's for sure. You know, part of the thing was like just calling schools. Will you hire me? You know, and, you know, I was telling my dad, everybody's saying no. And he's like, well, mijo, it's not as bad as coming here with no, you know, no, no money, no language, no job, no prospect. You know, we just had our family. Right. Um, so, yeah, in terms of like, I, you know, I, I just read um, this book by a woman named Tosha Silver and it's called it's uh, it's not your money. And the idea of, um, you know, the universe, she uses different words, God, the universe, you know, whatever, there's three different words she uses, um, has the plan for you. Um, I feel like, you know, me mapping out my own destination puts me on the path when I don't get to where I want to go and I'm failing and whatever it is, then the, the real path is revealed. So for me, it's, um, I do feel that and I, I am able to take, it's funny when I was, uh, when I was trying to be an actor and trying to get on, you know get into plays and, and TV shows in Chicago and New York, I would get rejected and I would feel personally just devastated. But when I get rejected as a, when I get rejected as a writer for my children's books or my fiction novels or the TV shows I'm writing, I just feel like, oh, this is not, this wasn't the publisher to work with. This isn't the network that this should, should be on. This isn't the thing that needs to happen. Um, so, you know, I, I do, I love, uh, I just had this conversation with my son a couple of years ago asking, he's like, dad, does God exist? I'm like, you know, it's hard to say. If God does exist, isn't the world better? Don't you feel a little better knowing that there's some force out there looking out for you and trying to trying to make it right for you? And he's like, yeah, it feels a little better. Just believe that. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of like this. It was actually two of his eight, eight-year-old friends. And we just, we had a discussion about God and it was great. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I, I, I don't, 
it's funny, I was raised Catholic in my mom's Boston Irish Catholic tradition. And, um, you know, and it's really great to have this, you know, this force, this being to talk to, you know, like, hey, God, I'm doing this thing right now. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I, I'm, I think that you, you can help out in one way or another. Um, and if not, you know, the, the, the prayer, you know, thy will be done, you know, something, something good is going to happen. If this is going to be great, that's great. If it's a, if it's a failure, I'm sure that something good is going to come from it. Um, so, you know, even, even in the midst of, you know, breaking up with this, what I thought was the love of my life, you know, it turned into this story that I was able to craft it into a story where I was able to find humor in it. And I was able to find sort of a commonality. And when I was performing the story around the country, um, it was really wonderful to have people come up to me afterwards and share with me how they survived their own particular hardships, whether it was relationships or jobs or, you know, people passing in their lives or whatever. And so, you know, and in some ways to be a, an excuse or a conduit to start a conversation um, was really, was really powerful. And, you know, in terms of my own personal life, sort of the, to finish the, the thought, I do feel closest to some sort of spirit or God when the performances are going, when there's some, so there's something that's happening on stage with the audience in, in me, if I'm sort of getting out of the way of the story that feels really, uh, really, really holy and really um, phenomenal in some ways. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. Well, I've certainly experienced my share of colossal failures and, you know, things that I thought were going to be just the end of it all, you know, and I just was laughing to myself when you were relating uh, the story on that video. And I hope people go to your site and, and check that out because I was thinking, oh, I have to tell Antonio some of my my failure stories. But you're but you're right in that they they really lead you to where you're supposed to be and and I think when you're open to that and like okay well this didn't work out you know I mean everyone you know Edison failed how many millions of times before he created the light bulb you know and I was thinking of some of some of my failures in, in my own career like when I had was fired for a radio job after I moved from Florida to California and after a year oh. I was part of a big layoff bloodbath and everybody got fired and I went to a temp agency just looking for a job just answering the phones and there was like a 20 something there and they made me take a test with mail merge and all this stuff. <laughs> it was just, it was so funny. I was sitting across the desk from, you know, someone half my age and she just was like shaking her head. You know, Diane, we need to talk about your test scores. And I'm like, Oh, I'm so humiliated, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but I survived that, you know, and, and right. other things too. And it's a part of the human experience. Right. And I think we really learn more from our failures sometimes than our successes absolutely um sure. you know i had another horrible failure i'm actually going to tell this for the first time on the air of this horrible failure that i thought was totally going to end my life my career was over and i was working as a traffic reporter reading a news report pre-recording it well i made a mistake and i uttered like a horrible four-letter word beginning with f Oh, and no. it, it, it was broadcast. It was broadcast over the airwaves. Oh, uh, no. Complaints were made. I was ultimately fired from that oh, my job. Gosh. Not only that, it was so embarrassing that they they printed it in one of the local rags here, the San Diego Reader, <laughs> so that everybody could find out about my embarrassment and humiliation for uttering this word, which I thought was being just taped, not live. 
anyway, I thought it was a career ender. I was horrified. I didn't get out of bed for two days. I'm like, that's it. My life is over. <laughs> He's sure. like, I can't show my face, you know, but now right. I can laugh about it and, and talk about it to you and say, hey, I can I can survive, you know, uttering the, the dreaded uh, F word that was broadcast over the airwaves and, and live to tell the tale. So uh, right. I think it gives us resilience too, right? That it does. I was it's, just thinking it's though. It's going to be okay. It, what's that? I'm sorry. What's that? Oh. Are you there? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah sorry. Um, I was just thinking that the courage it takes to tell a story about a failure, like even you saying this is the first time you've said it on the air. I'm, I'm sure you've told it to friends and stuff like that, but oh, when yeah. somebody takes that leap and says, look, this horrible thing, because look, are you the only one that happened to? Of course not. And so now it gives us, oh, yes, here, you know, it gives us the invitation to talk about it ourselves. And, you know, there's a lot to be learned from from these sorts of things. You know, there, I can see a, a beginning broadcaster listening to that story and laughing at that story and being really clear the next time. Like, OK, I'm, I'm hopefully you never made that mistake again. But, you know, so it's like, OK, there, there's a <laughs> no. there's a reason for that. Right. Um, I was just thinking about that. I mean, just two years ago, I got into a little fender bender and it, you know, it reminded me like, oh, I have to be really careful on the road here. This is really important. Right. So I feel like sometimes they're a little like that little warning, which felt like the end of the world wasn't. And it, you know, it it's something that, you know, having the courage to share those stories is really, really important. It helps, it helps open, open us up to, to our, our other things as well. Um, my, my kids, uh, my son is in fifth grade. When he was in fourth grade, his teacher came in with the new buzzword in education, which is growth mindset, which is basically the idea that we should praise effort and not result. And then if you think about, if I think about that, like uh, I, I love in California, all the kids know Steph Curry and LeBron James and Messi and all these amazing sports players. I love asking the kids the question, how many goals has Messi missed? How many shots has Steph Curry missed? How many games has LeBron James lost? And they all know, oh, Curry, Curry only shoots 60%. So 40% of his shots he misses. And that's failure. That is tr total failure. So how does he get to 60% by just failing over and over again until he gets it? And, you know, I, I as I teach writing to kids and, and help uh, adults, uh, teachers teach writing, like they got to get words on the page. You got to write sloppy. You got to make mistakes. You have to have errors. It's the only way you're going to get to that other spot. Um, and so I, you know, I, I do love that with my own children. Like, listen, oh, you really tried really hard. You worked hard on that problem. Not you're great at math because now the next time she does a math problem, if she's wrong, She's going to be like, oh, no, daddy thinks I'm terrible at math now. It's no, you worked, you worked all day to get that problem and you didn't get it, but you kept working. And then tomorrow you'll work on it and maybe you'll get it and maybe you won't. But that's part of, that's part of, you know, stretching those muscles and stretching, stretching your brain. Right. And being able to accept it, take the lesson and, and move on, you know, it, it, don't let it derail you where you're just, you know, constantly ruminating over, you know, what you think is this most horrible failure. And, and you share this uh, really nicely in, in the children's book uh, that I read, uh, Mango in the Hand, uh, that you also kind of skillfully weave in English and Spanish in this as well. And just to kind of d dovetail on what we're talking about, you know, one of the proverbs you share, you know, nothing bad happens that good doesn't come of it. And I, I think it's so, I mean, how old is that proverb, right? <laughs> like, yeah, for sure. We've been trying for to sure. learn this lesson, you know, forever. Yeah. And it, it still, you know, it still kind of comes to tap us on the shoulder sometimes and say, hey, we, we need to learn this. And and some of the other proverbs, too, that you relate in that story um, can be really helpful. Was that a, a recent book or did that come out 
um, a couple of years ago. That came out a few years ago. It came out in 2013, but it's been it's in its seventh printing, and they keep re-releasing it. There's it's definitely finding an audience, which is really great, and and that's one of the one of the show one of the TV shows I'm working on as well. Sort of this kid who gets into you know in the the book that you're referencing, he's trying to pick a mango and he can't, and his family keeps giving him different sayings to help him do it, and that kid just gets into other trouble as the you know the TV series I'm envisioning goes along. But yeah, you know, like there's one of the one of the sayings is you know. Um, uh, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are, you know, and that's, that's a, that's a powerful one. I heard from my grandmother a lot. You, know, you look around the few kids you're hanging out with, who are they? Oh, they're athletes. They're, they're fun. They're respectful or they're troublemakers, you know, then which one of them are you, you know? And so these little sayings were really, really helpful for me growing up. Um, and there's, there's some of the things I want my, my kids to, to know about as well. I was also thinking though about like the story we tell of the event that happens really helps us either move forward or not. I mean, if you look back just in your your example, you could say, wow, I was just so silly and I was I sabotaged my career and I, I'm a disaster and I'm never going to work again. That could be a true story. And if you if you wallow in that story, then that's what that story is going to be. You know, and so in some ways like the thing a storyteller can do is can take these horrible events. And I've been studying the Grimm stories, right? The, the the Brothers Grimm, you know, dad and mom kick the kids out to live in the forest and they're encountered by a, you know, a kid eating witch, you know, Hansel and Gretel. That's miserable. Right. How are they going to survive that? <laughs> you know, and, and they, those kids could have wallowed in the forest. My parents are, are disasters. They, they kicked us out in the forest and here we are. Or they could come together and fight to you know, topple the witch and, you know, work together to, to get out of that situation. And so I, I, you know, the thing I'm struggling with as a dad is letting my kids have their feelings, right? You, you, you make a mistake on the air and you're, you're fired. You can wallow for a couple of days. You can cry. You can do, you know, you, it's okay to be sad. You definitely messed up. Feel those feelings. You know, because I'm very quick to be like, all right, no, you, so you broke that toy. We'll go buy another one. No, that's not the right response in the moment. Oh, that toy is, you love that toy so much and now it's gone forever. And, you know, and then after we feel them, then we try to try to figure out a way to move forward. Um, So, you know, I I do feel like, you know, the stories we tell about the the failures and the success or even the successes, you know, it happened to me when that book came out, you know, I was was really excited and I'm like, oh, I'm a great writer. I don't need to rewrite and work really hard on my next story. Well, the next story didn't get published right away. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. No, the reason the mango book came out is because I worked really hard on that story. I really honed every single word and every every phrase. So I am not this best, you know, best-selling kids book author. I am an author who needs to work really hard to make the next book come out. And so, you know, uh, either you can you can tell two different stories about the same event and it can lead to two different paths. Um so I think that there's something really 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 rich there about looking at some of these successes and failures and trying to figure out What's the story that gets me going in the world? You know, whether it's true or not, you know, it, it, it's true that I am both, you know, phenomenal author and the most rejected author I've ever met. And which one gets me to sit down and write at my desk every day? Ah, the one that I believe where I have, I have something to say that's going to get me there. And I know that I need to work on it to get it out there. Not, oh, I'm the one that gets rejected by every publisher that reads my books. Um, so, nice. you know, and, and there are days when I feel that way anyway, but it's just kind of like, okay, let me just tell a new story about my day and about who I am and let's, let's move forward. That's so true. And what a great point, you know, to uh, really be careful of what stories you're believing about yourself, because that's true. You could get into the failure story and believe that's how it's going to be and drag yourself down. And, and you're right. It will be the self-fulfilling prophecy 
or you know you could kind of you could turn it around so yeah i like that that's that's interesting of what stories that we're going to believe and uh just as a, as like a uh what's the word reboot or or switch gears but you had mentioned that you're studying the grim fairy tales have you ever read the slovenly peter stories i, I haven't what is this tradition i have to look this up <laughs> <laughs> you haven't. Well, it's it's a German um, book of stories that still it, it haunted me for so many years. A neighbor that I grew up with, whose name was Brad, his grandmother was German and she had it. And it was originally called Struwelter. And it was stories for kids, like fables to keep kids in line. But they were horrifying and terrifying, like Slovenly Peter didn't comb his hair. And so bird's nest grew in it and he grew long you know, horrible looking fingernails or the kid that sucked his thumb, some, uh, you know, gremlin would come in and cut his thumbs off with scissors and there was blood. And I mean, it was like horrible <laughs> stories. It's like, I thought the grim stories are bad. You need, you need oh to read gosh. those. Slovenly I, Peter. Um, I will look that up. I, this is kind of how I exist in the folktale tradition. You know, I hear that and then I go, I go to my, my local librarian and I'm like, Hey, uh, this, you know, this woman I just talked to said that Slovenly Peter and they, and they I can guarantee your local librarian knows how to find that story or, or the stories of your own cultures. I tell this to parents all the time, like, oh, we didn't gather stories from our, you know, whatever, German, Russian tradition or African or Caribbean or whatever. And I'm like, well, you're, if you didn't do it in your family, the, your librarian knows where to get those stories. So, but, you know, at, because I've been such a student of the Brothers Grimm the last few years, I'm definitely going to go and, and find the Slovenly Peter stories. Uh, Slovenly, just, Peter, uh, they, Slovenly Peter. The author, I think, is Heinrich Hoffman, I'm pretty sure. Okay. And as an, as another aside, the, the book so haunted me over the years. I told my not at the time husband that I wanted it and he tracked down like an original copy oh and gave it to me. And that was one of the gifts that that won my heart. Was Aww. a copy of, of Slovenly Peter. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, but they're they're terrifying. They're they're terrifying stories. So, um, speaking of children's books, you know, you've got a couple of them out. I mean, people think it's easy to write a children's book. What would you say to that? I don't think it's that easy. Well, so the short answer is it is because there's so few words, right? So there there's some there's some books that have you know four or five hundred words and. Most people can write four or five hundred words in a couple of hours. Um, so in terms of like, yeah, anybody anybody can write a write a children's book. It's not like, oh, I'm going to write a novel, which you know can be five hundred pages, which can take most people, you know, while Stephen King does it in a couple hours, right? But most most people are writing, you know, books. It takes them a long time to get a book out. So that's one answer. But because it is seemingly so easy, everybody has a picture book. So what's hard is it's hard to get a picture book published because, you know, a typical agent or publishing house or you know whatever they're they ha they're sitting on a slush pile that is you know a slush pile is basically all the scripts that they have yet to read that is that is thousands of 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 books long you know and so it's hard to get through the noise of that the other thing about a, a children's book is it's it feels much more like a poem in terms of you have to distill everything down when you only have a thousand words to tell a story what what has to go that's the hardest thing what do you cut out there's an i think there's a i don't know if it's from twain or who it's from but you know i would have sent you a, a shorter letter but i didn't have the time you know and i think that's that's true with children's picture books what do you leave out but still get the story to be told um so that's you know i do talk to a lot of people about you know not everyone says oh i can write a novel or i want to write a tv show or a movie or i want to you know whatever it is they want to do but almost everyone i meet is like oh, i've got a good idea for a children's book 
And the very first thing I say is, if you have an idea for a children's book and you have a child anywhere in your life, a nephew, a niece, a cousin, a neighbor, your, your teacher, whatever, write that story down and read that story to that child um, for a couple of reasons. Children are the intended audience, although their parents are often reading the book to the children. But secondly, children are the most honest audience. Um, I, I love performing for adults um, and I do it a lot, but I, children will tell you within a couple of words or sentences if they think the story is any good. They'll either be listening with just their whole entire heart and body, or they're going to be bouncing up and down and looking for whatever they can do. So in my own process, I'm, I, I have a new book coming out at the end of the year, but I'm, I'm constantly working on new books. And I'm just, you know, with my own kids or with the kids I get to see in, in my, you know, telling stories around the country, you know, I'm trying out new stuff and looking at their reactions. And if you can't get a hundred, you know, the, the kids really excited about the idea that you have, then you're not onto something, no matter how good the idea is. So it, there is a craft and there is a, a time to it. Um, and, but there's also a need, you know, like your, your own personal stories, nobody's going to tell them. I'm not going to interview your family and, and get your family stories and keep them alive. That's, that's on you or somebody in your family to do that. And I, I think that's really crucial work. Even if, even if nobody ever hears those stories, except for the people in your family, those are the things that they're going to remember. Um, you know, that's, that's the thing that I think can become the legacy, you know, oh yeah, I, I don't really remember the specifics of what my grandmother wore or what she cooked or what we did, but I do remember what it was like to sit with her and to listen to her or, you know, hopefully my kids would say the same, you know, they don't maybe won't remember that I was able to provide phenomenal gifts at Christmas time, but they will remember that every time we walk to school, we're talking about something different. Um, you know, every time we tell our kids to, you know, Put the put the device down, or we put our own devices down. It's so hard, right? And then we're we're starting to connect. I think there's something really powerful there, and really important. Right. I was going to ask you. I mean, do you think the challenge today is is harder with the competition of trying to pull the device out of the kid's hand? You know, like, hey, give me the iPad. Let me tell you a story. For sure. Exactly. I you know I, I did hear this <laughs> harder, on some right? podcast somewhere. That, you know, the other side of the device are a thousand of the smartest minds of our generation, right? And these people whose every every waking moment is how to keep you stuck on that device. And it's really hard to compete with that. Now what they don't have is they don't have that immediacy, they don't have that eye to eye contact. And this like if there's something that's there that still can't be replicated. As a matter of fact, you know, you, uh, the joke on my website about I'm the most successful storyteller you've never heard of. We don't really work on a mass media yet. We haven't quite figured that out. I mean, in some ways, Mr. Rogers got kind of close to that with his connection with the camera and everything. But, but for the most part, like that connection, you know, that child in your lap as you're reading a story, that kid in the car that when you turn off the radio and the and the DVD player and you're 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 playing the Counting Cows game or the license plate game or, or the I Spy game or the Let me tell you about my uncle, you know, M Matthew game. Um, those are those are things that the iPad can't can't compete with, you know. So I I, I do think it's hard, and uh, those devices are built to keep our attention, and they're crucially important. We need them for all kinds of things, and I consume a lot of my content and get a lot of my research done on on these devices but yeah i do uh as hard it is there's a reason that storytelling has been around for you know fifty thousand years and maybe maybe the ipad will and maybe it won't um you know when you know i i think that that's something that is uh hard hard to fight but it's also once we put it down and start doing it you see i see a change in my own family it's been a, a conscious effort we've been making the last few years for sure 
Right. It'll be interesting to see, you know, if you could flash forward like a hundred years and see, you know, how people are communicating if we're just like texting, not even right. speaking, you right. know, if, if that's if that's how it's going to be, like some horrible right. sci-fi story. You know, hopefully right. uh, that's not the case. It's been so cool to talk with you. You know, we have just a few minutes, like the time's kind of flown by. Uh, I've got about like two minutes left, but, you know, I went to an event here in San Diego not long ago called Vamping, a spoken word event where people were sharing stories, and I really loved it. I mean, what what could you tell someone that, you know, wants to try their hand at storytelling? What are, so what it's, it's great that you consider? brought that up. Every Almost every community I can think of has something like what you're talking about. Uh, for sure, in the bigger cities, they have The Moth, and they have This American Life, and they have uh, Snap Judgment, and you can just you can just do a search for it. There's tons of great storytelling shows. But, you know, I got my start doing, you know, open mics at cafes, you know, and you can start one yourself. And, and you know, there's, there is a, a venue for you if you have a specific kind of story to tell. It's out there in your neighborhood. And if there isn't, you can start it yourself. You can do a little group of people in your own living room. One of my friends did that here in Los Angeles. It's, it's, you know, it's Rodney's living room series. And whoever has a story, you just go and you share it. So there's a power in sharing stories. And, and I know that if they just did a quick search on the Internet, you'll, you'll, there's plenty of places to tell stories and wherever your listeners are. Oh, as a matter of fact, so I just cool. did um, sidewalk. Did you hear about the the talking on sidewalks or something? Which is uh, people just sitting and listening to stories. So I, yeah, the, it's it's out there. They just need to scratch the surface. Well, I'm sure you're going to inspire a lot of people to get out there and tell some stories. And I hope people find you. I, I'd love to see you somewhere live. Uh, check Antonio's site, Antonio Sacre, S A C R E. Dot com And also keep an eye out for some of his other projects. I said, uh, I think you've got some TV stuff you're working on, some other children's books. I, I look forward to seeing what you do next. You have to let me know. And, and I'm telling you, look up Slovenly Peter. <laughs> I will do it, Diane. It's been a <laughs> great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Dendy-Smith, and Meredith Tollison. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.